Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and in this podcast we ponder new, the ancient and sacred stories of Scripture. And this uh, season we've been looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, and this week we're going to focus on the most painful of topics, circumcision. No, actually we're not going to focus on that. We're going to reflect on boundaries and how circumcision was this sort of this boundary marker of who's in and who's out in the uh, early church and how even though we don't struggle with that particular issue, the issue of boundaries is so much a part of uh, both sort of the good and the bad of the church's legacy. And so to sort of think uh, through that and finally sort of if the church just struggles so much with boundaries, sort of why not give up on the whole project altogether? And I'll try to offer my sense of why I continue on, uh, why I, I believe that ultimately the Christian faith um, does give us profound uh, insight and hope into thinking about uh, boundaries in this world. to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to the one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the ancestor of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. Last week, I got a call from a church member that there had been police at our church's cemetery. And I kind of groaned like, oh no. Turns out there was uh, some paraphernalia left behind that actually wasn't about drugs. But when you did a little bit of internet research based on what was left behind, it was somebody had done a, some sort of ritual and it didn't involve killing any animals or something that was used to ward off uh, evil spirits. And what um, struck me about this was not like my immediate, you know, concern for the safety of the cemetery, although, you know, it is private property and I don't want people to feel that their loved one's graves are disrespected. Um, The police said they would kind of, you know, keep an eye on it. And so that's that's fine. But what really kind of got me thinking here was, you know, here's this person who has some sort of spiritual hunger, some kind of concern um, about, yeah, evil in their lives. But they, they came to our cemetery in a clandestine kind of ritual, but they didn't 
ever come to the church. They didn't email me. They didn't call me. They didn't interact with anybody in our church's community or knock on our door or, you know, sit outside at worship or, again, there was no interaction that I'm aware of. And, you know, I began the podcast um, with this reflection or this season uh, with, you know, uh, based on the book and the movie, A Man Called Otto, and uh, with John, this is a post-Christian sort of reflection on community, and then this, um, and then also the song by John Lennon, you know, imagine there's no heaven and there's no hell, and the sort of the way in which we live in this kind of post-Christian society, or at least post-Christendom society, but I, I don't think we live in a truly post-spiritual age, and then I still think that there's a sense in many of us, and the vast majority of us, that there's something greater than ourselves, um, that there is a sort of um, some sense of, of beauty, if not even truth, um, that is, is just greater than ourselves, that just draws us and, and inspires us. And, or also those times of just a real profound sense of evil's presence in the world or in our lives that make us convinced that there's something greater than ourselves at work. And what, I'm, uh, what I lament profoundly is that people, when they have those real sort of spiritual awakenings or just kind of spiritual nightmares, that they don't necessarily think of, oh, I should go to, to church or at least not a church like mine that has, you know, established roots in the community and a pretty building and everything. There are clearly some sort of boundaries that prevent people from acquiring or seeking the spiritual goods that they're hungry for within a existing Christian community. And I think some of those uh, boundaries are, uh, well, a sad story. Uh, a woman needed to come to our church uh, some Sunday, and uh, we spoke about it, and she said to me, well, I'd really like to come, but I don't think I have nice enough clothing. And I appreciated her candor there, and it was very humbling to me to think that this person viewed their own clothing, which really is a proxy for their class and their income, uh, if not other things sort of morally about themselves, or they just didn't feel worthy. There was some profound boundary that they were not able to overcome. And part of us might say, well, there shouldn't be any boundaries in a church. And I think that's a a noble aspiration. But as we reflect together on Paul's letter to the Romans here, we realize that may be more aspirational than anything based in reality. So Paul here is writing in his letter to the Romans, and he begins, or he furthers his argument about grace and faith over works of the law by appealing to Abraham. And he says, you know, Abraham was given the promise before he was circumcised. And so this can't be about circumcision that we're part of Abraham's family. Uh, In fact, uh, it's really not even about the works of the law or anything with that. It's about Abraham's faith, and therefore all who have faith, who trust in the promise, these are the descendants. This is whose family that we're in. And what Paul is referring to then is is a boundary that's existing within his community, within the Christian community, between those who are circumcised and those who are not. In fact, well, let's just 
pause here and, and kind of review some stuff and then kind of get back to the main. The last 80 years of biblical scholarship, at least the New Testament, have spent a tremendous amount of time rediscovering, sort of reproclaiming and then um, articulating the Jewish world of the first century. If you read commentaries in the Gospel of John 100 years ago, or even maybe 70, 80, sort of just in the, is that sort of round of scholarship is ending, you get a lot of stuff about the Greek, Hellenistic, um, Roman influence, Roman world influence, the Greco-Roman society's influence on, say, especially like the Gospel of John and, and Gnosticism and all this stuff. Now, if you read a commentary, it's going to be all about the Jewish uh, perspective of the writer of John's Gospel. In the same way, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans more and more is focusing. I remember when I grew up, you know, this was Paul's letter to the Gentiles in Rome. But now it's you read commentaries, and they're all about how Jewish the audience was. And in this one commentary I was reading sort of was really trying to argue, in fact, there were sort of two main groups, maybe a third, and the first were people that grew up Jewish, the second were people that grew up as Gentiles and then actually converted, were circumcised, and then a third group would be just Gentiles that hadn't yet uh, gone through circumcision. And that Paul is actually trying to make an argument against the power of circumcision to those who chose to be circumcised as adults. Regardless of the validity of that argument, just as a a trajectory to say that a lot of biblical scholarship now has become quite aware of how Jewish the early church was um, and, and what that actually uh, means for how we understand it and what we're recognizing even within that Jewish sort of influence and worldview is not just a singular worldview but various Jewish perspectives of which sort of the writers of the Gospels and the Jesus movement are really but one voice of many of sort of what first century Judaism should or could look like. Why I think that's significant for boundaries is because when I was um, younger, I had this assumption that the church started out as a Jewish institution, and then once you get to Paul, then it sort of flips a switch to Gentiles, and then the rest of the time it's just ministry among um, people that weren't uh, Jewish. But he, there's a sociologist, Rodney Stark, who's done research, again, reading these commentaries. It's just clear that the, the Jewish influence in the church is going to continue for much of the first century, if not even the first and the second century. And why I think this is, is helpful is that um, I think sometimes in, in a church we want sort of conflict or around these social issues. We just kind of want the church to take a, a clear stand and, and to sort of move on. And I, I think what it actually means to be the church is to wrestle, to wrestle with some of these really thorny social issues about identity, about boundaries. They, they're, I don't think they're resolved in, in 5, 10, 15, 25 years. I think many of them do take the church uh, as a whole a long time to work to work through. So again, all of the reading I've been doing about the New Testament um, in the first, in the sort of the, the world that it grew up in in the first century is leaving me pretty convinced that I wouldn't say conflict, but real hard questions that the churches are facing around uh, boundaries, identity, who's in and who's out. Um, and throw that in there with honor and shame of who's 
who's bringing honor to the community? How are we ashamed by association with certain people? Again, I think these are issues that, that don't get resolved very quickly. And so, you know, when we're part of uh, either modern denominations or churches or congregations, and we're going through these sort of times of discernment um, about, again, who's in and who's out, um, there, these, these take time. So should we just then give up on the church altogether, right? Imagine there's no heaven or hell and everybody just kind of gets along. Well, first of all, I don't think that all boundaries are bad. In fact, I think boundaries and intimacy are closely intertwined. You can't have intimacy without some sense of boundaries. And ultimately, um, what often creates boundaries in life is, is actually uh, shared rituals, memories, and stories. So I think we've all been there at some point where somebody invites us to a family gathering. Could be a future in a spouse or a close friend. It was like, oh, my family's so great. And you get there and you feel totally excluded. And not even because the people are being mean, but because they just have their own sort of internal insider jokes and, uh, you know, laughter and rituals and all sorts of stuff. And like, is that bad that people have, you know, sort of almost code languages and shared stories and, and rituals? No, hardly. This is, this is what you kind of what makes life kind of beautiful is that kind of friendship and community. So there's a way in which relationships uh, and, and boundaries and intimacy, uh, they're all kind of wrapped up. So I don't think we can get rid of boundaries. Um, and second of all, you know, churches sometimes will go really heavy on trying to get rid of boundaries and say, you know, all are welcome, right? There's just, this becomes their, their defining mantra. But, you know, one person said jokingly, kind of in bitter irony about their church, they said, we're so welcoming in our church that the only people who actually show up are well-educated, wealthy whites, and in their efforts to capture diversity, they ended up just creating an even more narrow slice of the pie. Um, and, and they did not achieve their actual ends of, of having a diverse uh, community. Um, that I actually want to argue that when, in order to have diversity, in order to really cross boundaries of class or race, gender, um, even sexual orientation, whatever sort of the, the boundaries might be, um, you, you have to have something that becomes a new common ground for people. And that for Paul, what he's arguing is that the real common ground is not going to be our markers of tribalism, circumcision, he says that our, our real common ground is going to be something that is accessible to all of us, and that is faith. Faith in the word of promise that God in Jesus Christ has died and has risen for you. And so Paul says, hey, look, there's, there actually is a, a common ground here. 
And, and I think this is why, uh, you know, the, one of the core reasons is that I, I think there's a, a ground here for um, a, a common ground, a, a common sacred ground. And this is what Paul is really getting at. So he's starting to look at these sort of divisions in Roman society and all the churches he's been working with, the, the internal sort of challenges and, and, and sort of navigating through these social issues. And he's saying, hey, look, but we have a common ground that's accessible to all people, not just to people of one particular uh, tribe. And so I think the way for the church to actually become a less bounded, or a church with fewer boundaries, is actually more to focus on what we can have in common, uh, namely the, the love and truth of Jesus Christ. How we translate that, how we make that accessible, yes, all churches must work on that. But I think fundamentally, if we don't have that sort of core there of that accessibility of that particular promise, it's going to be really tough. The, the last thing is that uh, the, the boundaries, uh, so when I think about like a society that, that has not just imagined, but right, they, they have, they do not have Christianity, either like Hindu India or, um, or like communist China. Uh, I don't think those societies are uh, any less struggling with various divisions in, in their society. You know, we can't sort of like draw a, a map and say, okay, well, secular societies in the world clearly have, you know, better integration of people and less problems with like division. I mean, just one of the most secular societies in the world is France. And like, you know, this summer they've just been you know, struck by, by riots. Um, you know, the, the list goes on and on across the world. So you can't make some, like, real obvious thing to say, oh, wow, well, societies that are high in religion, you know, have more boundaries. This is the... Um, that's not to say that societies that are high in religion, you know, don't have boundaries. But again, North Korea is not particularly religious, very rigid, you know, bounded society. Now, yes, you do have Iran today, which is having moral police running around, you know, putting women in jail, if not worse, for not wearing their head coverings. So I don't want to say that religion can't go crazy in the other way, too. But what we're getting at here is that this really is a human phenomenon to create boundaries, that we're just sort of wired this way to think tribally. And that not only is Jesus Christ a ground for us to overcome those boundaries, but that, that the Spirit is going to allow uh, people to actually um, walk across those boundaries. To me, the part of why I'm a Christian is because there is an autocorrective function here. There, there is the, the Spirit that is active in seeking to call the church to repent, to overcome various boundaries. And the Spirit then works in really messy ways, in individual congregations, uh, in denominations, in broader church movements, when the church has to learn humbly from um, people outside the church because they're doing it better than, than we are, um, uh, of, of maybe even scandals that, that humble us. I, I think that the, the Spirit is, or, uh, you know, in, in the work of reporting those and just kind of bringing the church to kind of say, what have we done? The Spirit works in a very long, slow process 
of which human sin is very much involved, and it's not always clear at any given moment uh, what God is up to. Um, but, but part of the reason why I, I'm committed to the Christian church is not because at any given point it looks like it ought to, but I see that it's the only instrument in the world that has the potential for social change without revolution. Again, almost all other mechanisms the way social change is brought about is by violent overthrow, by secret um, sort of, you know, power sort of things internally. But Christianity says, no, we can actually have the spirit poured out upon us in a way that makes us recognize that God is calling us in a different direction. And so a God who didn't just set the laws in the past, but a God who is continuing to speak to us today, well, we can misunderstand that and go in, in all sorts of wrong directions. To me, is, is a God then who is active in this world in, in changing society, in, in calling us to sort of open our hearts more to, to the universality of, of God's promise. I hope I've not been too upbeat and optimistic. I do not wish to deny that many people have felt very much excluded or hurt by boundaries of the church. That's definitely part of the story there. I do not mean to say that, oh, because they have the Holy Spirit in Jesus, like there's no problems. I want to say this is a real hard thing, and this is a hard thing as a pastor to try to figure out what boundaries in the church where I serve are, are really helpful or, or just necessary and, and what are harmful. Um, and I think for all of us as Christians or people of faith to say, when have I felt excluded? When have there been boundaries that have uh, meant that I couldn't feel fully of, in fellowship with God and with others? And, and how can I work to help remove those barriers for other people? So happy ponderings. <laughs>